This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. I'm with Margaret Zolotkowski, and today we're talking about textiles. How are you doing, Margaret? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Great. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background first, if you would. All right. Well, in um, May of 2012, I graduated from the University of New Hampshire with a bachelor's degree in history. And um, my concentration was 19th century social history, which they kind of had to create a concentration for me because I kind of had a hodgepodge of stuff going and it didn't really fit into any pretty little box that they had. But I really enjoyed kind of exploring social history and how people lived and what they did and why they did it. Mm -hmm. And you became interested in textiles, more or less? Yes. And that's Um, basically what we're going to talk about today? Correct. Right. Yes. So, and then you've interned? Um, I've been interning at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston since um, June of 2012, so just after I graduated. So I'll be there a year this June. Wow. What's that? That's a, a wonderful place. What's that experience been like? It has been phenomenal. I can't say a lot of my friends have had the same postgraduate year as I have had. Um, you know, only being there two days a week, I'm still seeing so much. Um, there's everything from Peruvian textiles from the 16th century to things that have just kind of walked right off the runway that I'm seeing to people just bringing things in that they've had in their family, you know, in their cedar chest for the past 50 years and want to check it out and, you know, see what it's worth or if it, you know, belongs at the museum. So people actually bring things right into the museum? Yes, they do. Yeah. And I know the number one thing they're going to ask and a museum never answers it. And that is how much is this worth? Correct. (laughs) Uh, However, we do give them a list of people to, you know, kind of see for those questions. I see. Uh Uh-huh. Um, One of the things I may have said in this podcast before, I'm not really sure, is that I consider textiles one of the most biodegradable antiques that there is out there. You know, I do believe I said that when I was talking about samplers, early schoolgirl samplers. When we talked before, you told me a little bit about conservation. Mm -hmm. What can be done when something is starting to biodegrade and go away? Can anything be done to stop it? You know, conservators in the textile and fashion arts department are just excellent. They are so passionate about what they do and so talented. So, um, you know, for us, when we kind of get a piece in, the first thing to do, I guess, that is best for it is just to really treat it well. Um, everything we handle, we use gloves, um, Depending on the piece, you know, sometimes if there's buttons, you know, you always need to, you know, if we're, if the gloves are a little too cumbersome, we can, you know, work with our hands, but uh, your hands have to be clean and, you know, you can't touch your hair or your face or anything that produces oil. So you have to be really careful. Mm. Hair needs to be pulled back, Um, you know, and then from there we kind of assess where does it, you know, what does it need? Does it need to be, you know... um, fumigated or, um, you know, I had an issue with moths, which is very bad um, Mm -hmm. when it comes to textiles. Uh, When I was cataloging a collection, there was a moth infestation. 
Uh, I didn't actually see any moths, but the holes were there in the textiles. So that project was put on hold for three weeks while the um, textiles and clothing was sent to Anoxia. So um, they have a couple different methods for um, getting rid of moths or those types of infestations. And one is Anoxia, which is... I believe, like a, a deep freeze. Doesn't it take the, all the oxygen away, too? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I think they lock it away and, you know, yeah. do its do their thing, and then it comes back and it's okay, but it's very frightening when you have moths oh, sure. and textiles. A few years ago, I removed about 900 objects from the Denver Modern Art Museum, and we had to wrap things in packing blankets, some of them, to take out of there, and they said, no, 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 no. No packing blanket is going past this sealed door. So they are very, very cautious about any type of infestation. Yes. All they, museums, I'm sure. Everything that comes in really needs to be thoroughly looked at to reinforce that there are no moths or any type of infestation because that can be really bad considering the pieces of value that are in our collection. And if the smallest thing gets in there, then it becomes a really big problem. It goes away again. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So biodegradable and very vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, What would you consider the most interesting piece at the museum? Ooh, I was afraid you were going to ask me that (laughs) because there are so many. And, I mean, it's really tough to choose one that is my favorite or most interesting piece because, I mean, I think there are galleries that I haven't even explored yet. It's well, why just, don't you, can you pick something, some part of it that interests you a lot? You know, I love architecture and I love interiors. So even though I'm going away from textiles right now, there are some um, rooms that they've taken right from homes. Yes. Um, and those are just awesome because you just are really surrounded in the space and you really just feel like you're there. And I think that's kind of rare that you get to be in a space where you are just surrounded by the time, uh, the curtains, the floors, the walls, even, you know, the tables are set like you're going to have tea or something like that. So I think that's really special and really unique. Yeah. Little time capsules. Like, yes, I'm going to be working with the, just announcing this in this podcast, going to be working with the Peabody Essex Museum. Pretty excited about that. So we're going to have several podcasts, uh, starting with a Carl Fabergé exhibition coming up, and uh, that'll be in June sometime. Previously, when you and I corresponded through email, you said that one thing that really fascinated you was Victorian morning clothing. A morning as in someone passes away and the clothing that was worn. Let's talk about that. Uh, yes. So that was kind of my project my senior year of college, it was one of my um, big research projects. And, you know, I didn't even know it existed, to be totally honest. Sure. And I was interested. I was taking a class in Victorian Britain, and I was just, you know, kind of figure out what I wanted to do my kind of little course capstone on. And I was just, I I think it happened through Google. I was looking up antique jewelry, um, Victorian jewelry specifically, and I saw these interesting rings and they had skulls on them. And so I clicked on them and it said Victorian morning rings. I was like, well, that is very interesting. And then I kind of 
dove into it a little more and started to explore Victorian mourning and, you know, kind of what this phenomenon was because it was so foreign to me. Um, and to find out that it was really mourning in Victorian times was a big to do. Sure. And I mean, the mourning, uh, needleworks are pretty amazing too. Yes. I mean, it just, it was really eye opening because mm. it was such, um, a process between clothing, art, jewelry, uh, fashion in general, um, so that was, and there are multiple books written on it. So, and um, also going through the etiquette guides from actual Victorian times was pretty impressive to see how I mostly did women specifically, how women mourned and how they mourned through their appearance. Did they have guidelines for mourning? Yes. Um, I specifically looked into um, mourning in England. Um, mm-hmm. So. I saw that uh, probably the most famous woman in mourning was Queen Victoria, who mourned Albert for, I believe, from his death until her death, so for about 30 years. So she really stuck to her mourning. She was kind of cloaked in black, and every photograph, I believe almost every photograph, of her following Albert's death was in black. And I believe... It was a bit of an issue because when her daughter got married, she was wearing kind of mourning clothing, which was a bit of a faux pas because mm. a wedding is supposed to be a celebration of two new lives, and here she is kind of still yeah. carrying on. But um, She could have said she was imitating Johnny Cash. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but a um, bit of an anachronism there. But to answer your question, yes, there were guidelines. Um, you were to wear kind of all black and be in deep mourning. And as time went on, um, also wearing a crepe veil was kind of the telltale sign that a woman was in mourning. And after a couple years, the veil would come off, the clothes would still be black. And then after a certain period, a woman would go into half mourning where it was all right to wear grays, uh, deep mauve colors, kind of more subdued colors. And... Um, when I was reading through the etiquette guides, it was a bit of, say your husband died on May 1st. Well, if May 1st, a few years down the road, you show up in a pink blouse, you know, a fuchsia, fuchsia dress or something like that, that was considered, you're going to get talked about around town as being, you know, kind of, of questionable morals because you were just counting down the days until you could throw on your party colors again. So you had to ease into it. Exactly. Wow. Um, And what about the men? The men, it's funny. I did a little bit of research on to what men would do for mourning, and it didn't seem as though they had as strict a guidelines. Um, You know, following a death, they would often wear a black armband, which is still kind of I've I've seen today in some cases, but, um, you know, there wasn't as much of a process or as much time and thought and it wasn't as premeditated i guess as well women putting the burden on the women again yeah oh yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. um you know i've been to a lot of lectures on you know pastimes and anything from decorative arts to you name it and the conversations are usually centered around wealthy people the well-to-do people 
Um, I always wonder during these talks about the commoner, and do you know what the common folk did as far as mourning? You know, I tried to do a little research into it. Um, you know, like I said, the bulk of my research was on the f- upper classes. I know that it was a little expensive, um, so I don't know if they were able to kind of carry out this really grand morning, you know, head to toe for years and years because these women did have to go to work and they did mm-hmm. need to kind of contribute to the family income. So I'm assuming that maybe it was not on such a grand scale. Probably. <laughs> and another thing, we talked a little bit off mic about the Civil War clothing. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned that it's much easier to find an officer's uniform, even though there was far less officers and privates. And because the privates were of lesser means and they always wore their clothes back on the farm until it wore out. And so I imagine that the commoners are, as far as textiles go, are much more difficult to research. Yes. Um, I think that's pretty a widespread phenomenon because mm-hmm. for, you know, like christening gowns or wedding gowns, you mm-hmm. know, people tuck those away in their family memento and an heirloom and passed down through generations and they're well cared for. But, you know, those are for the people who can afford these things that, you know, are in a good enough state to kind of pass down. Whereas for the lower classes, it's, you know, you wear what you have and you wear it until it falls apart and then you sew it into something else and you keep wearing it. And so... I don't, yeah, I think it would be more difficult to track what the lower classes were wearing for mourning. Yeah. I actually just recalled um, a story that I had read about a woman who was of the lower classes, but uh, I believe it was her child or her husband who passed away, and pretty much all of the family members contributed to her mourning outfit. Um, Wow. So basically everyone kind of poured out their piggy banks to have this woman mourn in style, which to me kind of is a little ironic because it kind of makes you question the priorities of people. If you just lost a family member, yet you're figuring out the best way to look good at their funeral. I don't Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition of, you know, thought. Probably having a hard time putting food on the table. Exactly. At the same time. Yeah. So yeah. you may be putting other people in the grave when you uh, <laughs> try to look at someone else's funeral. Oh, okay. So we have to move on to a happier subject. Definitely. <laughs> um, fashion arts. Can you kind of, is that just a general term for clothing and accessories? Um, in my experience, it seems to be, uh, well, yes, I would say so. Um, I think fashion arts is kind of a really general term and, you know, you have things, the fashion history is just so deep and I mean, I'm really only scraped the surface. So from what I've learned over the past year, it seems as though there is, you know, the things that are beautifully made and handcrafted and, you know, were worn and then you have pieces that really aren't meant to be worn but are clothing. Um, they're doing some amazing stuff with these 3D printers um, nowadays that actually print 
objects kind of piling on top of, you know, I think it's plastic is the medium. I've heard about this recently. And they were even talking about doing this with food. Did you hear about that? I did not hear about that. Now that is bizarre. NASA. Really? Well, I'm not surprised. But that's a whole other subject. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, yes, I think fashion arts is just really a general term from, you know, whether it's something that's haute couture or something, you know, that it was created as a christening gown in the 1600s, um, you know, to a pair of shoes that no one is probably going to wear, but just look good. (laughs) Really? Yeah. I consider you you, in your twenties, you're fairly young. Mm -hmm. What got you interested in say history and apparel and things like that in the, in the first place? Well, I would, I would definitely credit my uncle Jim when I was growing up. I had um, an elderly uncle, so and an elderly aunt and uncle, and my mom would often go over to help my uncle out with my aunt who was failing in health. And my uncle and I would just kind of hang out, and we'd sit and we'd watch Antiques Roadshow. And <laughs> so, as cheesy as that might sound, you know, just kind of having that dialogue open to you at such a young age and kind of seeing the value of different things and not really understanding, you know, where this piece came from, but seeing that it can bring so much was really intriguing to me. And I just always kind of loved old things, um, which is bizarre. When I was young for Halloween, I dressed up as an old fashioned girl. (laughs) So I was like a Gibson girl one year for Halloween, which is Uh very strange and no one understood what I was doing. (laughs) But, um, you know, so it's always just been kind of a long time love. And then, you know, in high school I had excellent teachers who were so cool and so young and energetic. And I had one teacher who, when we were learning about the Italian Renaissance, had us carve bars of soap just to kind of get a feel of what it's like to carve something. Mm. Um, And then at UNH, the University of New Hampshire, I had fantastic professors again, just always very accessible and, you know, willing to let me kind of explore where I wanted to explore and, um, you know, like I said, they kind of created a concentration for me because I was, you know, I didn't fit into American history specifically or European history specifically or modern American or, um, so I just think that I've been really fortunate to have a lot of positive influences and people who are willing to let me explore. And then of course, being at the MFA, Um, the curators are excellent and Hmm. they are so knowledgeable and that it just makes you want to learn more. And I think I spoke to you about this earlier, but, you know, I thought I knew a good amount graduating college and then, you know, come into the textile and fashion arts department and we had the head curator who was wrapping up, you know, a show on colonial embroideries and then another curator who, work specifically with jewelry and is writing a book on jewelry. I mean, just these people have such deep knowledge of their fields and it's really just inspiring. So it makes you kind of want to go forward and learn everything you possibly can. Well, you'll definitely get there. Thank you. And you know, it takes the passion that you have to get involved in this and really become a specialist. And I think there's a bright future for you. And I'm really glad you're in the business or whatever type of business it is. (laughs) Thank you. Well, you've been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us for the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. 
This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.